Brad Johnson is my name, and this is my wife Judy, and we're gonna. And this is uh, David Overmiller. He's gonna be talking today too. So we're gonna be presenting about uh, CSAs and micro macro farms, wholesale monocropping. Um, what's the cost to get into it? Even though we're not real great on everything, we'll we're gonna try to give you an overview of what we do. So here we go. So kind of went through this already so my kind of my general view is start with what you have start with that learn what fits your market and abilities and purpose generally I think small to economical I, I think start small find your markets and ability within your experience and economic capacity obviously if you grow you're growing grain and rather large crops, that may be different. Just the sheer scale of economics for some crops requires a lot of land and equipment. We farm wheat on occasion, but it's not a main, main part of our crop. It's just a fill-in. We use it for rotation because we don't have the land, the expansive land that it takes really to be economical for wheat. But we do interim crops between, uh, say, we've taken out a tree crop and we're putting in something else, we'll, we'll put in a, a crop of wheat or safflower or hay um, of some type of rotation. And uh, in this case, I put this, this, well, I'll talk about this slide here in a little bit, but uh, let me get my thing figured out here. So in the mid-70s, I started with a small patch of tomatoes, and I sold those at local stores, fruit stands, roadside out of a pickup at our own house carport on a dead-end street, in the country off the main road and painted road signs and arrows to direct traffic out to our house where we were selling we were growing stuff we, we sold anywhere we could no refrigeration we were packing tomatoes on a ping-pong table so these are some hand tools these are some of my favorite hand tools um, you can get a lot done with some simple tools and I enjoy time spending with these as far as a, you know as far as low-tech and stuff you can do a lot with. This particular tool on the left and on the top right is made by a, a guy that used to work for me. He lives about 30 miles away and now he's gone into manufacturing these uh, up in Chico, California. And it's a really nice tool. You can adapt different pieces to it and uh, for cultivating or for weeding. And then on the right, lower hand side, those are just my some simple garden tools I, I use a lot of, a shovel. It's probably one of my, my favorite tools. You can do a lot with a shovel. Um, then I got the, the rake that I use for uh, smoothing off beds and, and that little, um, that's, that uh, thing on the right there I built out of some, a couple um, potato forks, spades that were, were, uh, had broken their handles. So I just made a, welded them onto a bar and then put the, my uprights on there for loosening them up my beds. And uh, I really like this, the planter. There's all kinds of planters, but that for planting a lot of seed quick, this is more technique maybe, but for small farms, small farming, I like these tools and that you can put in, you know, a, lots of different kinds of seeders that'll plant simply and very fast, you know. So I use that a lot for my corn, for my beans, um, okra, you know, stuff that I plant out in the field uh, can plant pr pr fairly quickly. Um, so it's true you can do more with less 
we grew nursery and row crops, hay and grain between trees while our orchards trees were young. Um, in fact, we designed some of our tree spacing with our harvesting and cultivating for row crops in mind. So, in other words, we planted the, we, we spaced our trees orchard out between trees, knowing we're going to come back and we were going to be putting vegetables between our tree, trees while they were young. So we, here you can see a roadway right here. So we'll run through here with a conveyor belt so we can pick our eggplant. So this is eggplant, make the beds between the trees, harvesting on one side. So we just have rows of eggplant between our trees as we're, until they get big. And this is when they were little, so this is the next year. And when they're little, then we put in, we were just, we put in hay crop in here. So we planted hay between there and then we're just trying to maximize our, our ground um, while they get um, bigger. And um, I started with kiwi nursery because I could produce a lot of income on a small area and do a lot of, a lot of the work myself. I took seed from, uh, from uh, kiwi fruit, it was a certain type of kiwi fruit, separated the seed, and when kiwi was, was up and coming, we, we, we grew from seed. Uh, you could transplant, and so then we grafted them. You could grow uh, 6,000 plants to an acre, and I could sell plants at that time for about $7 a piece. So on an acre, I could, as a one, just for myself, do most of the work and, and make you know, a pretty good bunch of money on, uh, on a small piece of ground. So you can produce a lot of, you can produce a lot on a small piece of land. To be more efficient, we share labor between different entities in our operation. We share equipment and labor within our family farm relationships, or sometimes other farms uh, share, we share labor from, from other farms that are doing pruning and maybe they're finished. Um, we, we have several entities within our farming operation. My brother has some, we have some together. Um, we have our own. And so we share within that group, we may not have enough labor for everybody uh, as a single unit, but as a whole unit, we can, we can keep people f working full time. So we share people between those operations. So it's the same thing with our, uh, say for, for labor for our peaches, um, we kind of calculate our vegetable harvest. I'm sharing more technique, but we, when we're, we're planning our vegetable operation, we try to get out of our vegetable harvest when our peaches and prunes start. So we're done with vegetables, we're moving into prunes, and then peaches, so the labor we're using in vegetables can move into the next crops that we're starting next coming up. So, so we work, our, our idea is to get our, get our vegetables in, and we're out, say we start picking in May, we're out in, in uh, the first part of August, and we start our prunes, and then we move into our peaches, the last part of, uh, into September and then dip, we used to go into pistachios then after that uh, in through October and then we're done with our harvest. What's that? And now we have walnuts so we're doing those instead. So we have a relatively diverse plan for production of crops. It adds to the workload but it's helped spread the risk. But we had to curb our enthusiasm to grow stuff in order to make money. So my point is there sometimes you want to grow too many things and you won't make any money at it. So one of the things I think is if you, don't know, if you don't know about something, grow it in your garden if you want to try it. If you can't sell it or eat it, then what? It could be costing you money. 
or in, in that case, some of what we do is we trade services for produce. Our hairdresser, our doctor, we trade produce for their services or our neighbors for goodwill. Um, the vegetable business, so as a smaller unit in vegetable business, it seems to gather more interest and romance. So here you can see, uh, you know, it's more interest generated for retail. Many people come to visit, family, friends, businesses. So it's something to consider if you want to work with people. We have schools that come out to our place that we give tours to. And uh, this is a couple, they come every year, this group. And then this is bottom picture is a group of people that come that actually we sell produce to. They come every year, they want to see our farm. They're some of our buyers. And uh, you know, so that's just, if you want to get involved with more people, the vegetable business seems to be a little more as a small farm type of unit versus say monocropping or just one crop that we do in some cases, some of our other stuff. So do you do it all? Do you grow your own transplants or do you buy it from the local store? I say don't kill yourself trying to do it all at once. Sure, I grow my transplants. It's something I've developed for my farm over time. But for a personal garden, it's not always the most efficient. It's quicker and, and many times less expensive to go buy a few dozen of something at the store if you haven't the place, skill, or planned ahead. I say do what's practical and effective unless you're tied to some specific market rules of growing and work toward improving your skills and growing practices and ability, abilities and soil over time. Ours is a farm that has developed and evolved over time, but if you can see what you want to accomplish first and up front, start there. Then you can work with more efficiency and accomplish what you want quicker. So that's not the way we did it. But if you know what you want to do first, I'd say draw that picture first and head that way. So what size? And what fit? Again, what do you have to work with? One size does not fit all. The principles may be the same, but each individual situation is unique. Whether you are large or small, create efficiencies. Large farming efficiencies. How about this for large farming efficiency? Here you have it done in one pass. Harvest, processing, distribution and planting. It really doesn't work that way, but what an idea. You got distribution. Talk about farm fresh. That's farm fresh right there. Or this one. This is the real one and amazing. I know you can't see what's really going on here that well, but here's a contrast. This is a farm we have worked on for many years, contract harvesting. They have some, somewhere around 100 to 150 square miles of orchard. They are efficient and well managed. It is very repetitive work. The benefit of monocropping is efficiency, spreading out your investment and learning in one area. The downside is having all your eggs in a few baskets for the risk of crop failure or bad pricing in that one crop and problems can be huge as well. I'm not advo advocating for this. I think society and our economy would be better off with more farmers and people farming the land. But this is amazing to see and experience. Such a well-run place 
and work with such good people who run this ranch. But it also makes me think of this quote from Fundamentals of Christian Education 362. The earth has its concealed treasures, and the Lord would have thousands and tens of thousands working upon the soil who are crowded into the cities. This is not a sales yard, but shakers used for harvesting on one ranch. Some of our harvest crew getting ready for harvest. One advantage, you can get a lot done quickly and efficiently. The downsides, downside, it comes with its own set of headaches working with equipment, a lot of equipment and a lot of people. So this is some of our own efficiencies. Our, they're in orchard work because we've invested in equipment for that. Being much of our land is in prune production, and our local farm community has the support system for dryers and processors close by. The capacity to harvest with some of these machines is incredible. Two to eight trees a minute, depending on conditions. If you might have missed it this morning, we kind of switched our program. We showed this thing in operation on another presentation I had, so you can see how we run this, this machine. And this is a slower of, of the types that we use, but when you have a lot of Trees, like that ranch I showed you before, we're trying to harvest a lot of ground quickly. On, a, on an evening, one day we could, we could, on a really good day, you could maybe pick 25 acres a day with one of these machines. You know, we might, we might average, you know, maybe 15. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really going, and you're going fast and doing a lot of work. And it's efficient, it works really well. So that's what we've been developed in agriculture in some of these ranches. We hire some harvesting on our farm because it is not cost effective for us to own, our, to own some expensive equipment for a couple days out of the year, such as for walnuts. And that we showed some about our walnut harvest earlier. But for veg and hand picking, we can compete on some crops because everyone in certain crops needs to hand pick. For example, eggplant, zucchini, heirloom tomatoes versus carrots, which are mass produced for large food chains by the square mile and all mechanical production. Here you can see this large carrot harvester digging and loading into trucks for processing. You can't really see it that well, but this thing is digging the carrots and out of the ground and running them in a conveyor right into the truck. And then they take them in and process them. Uh, this is me. So we were there. We're harvesting down right next to them on pistachios, but, but we just happened to, you know, down there there's just mile after mile of production. So we just went over to watch these guys harvest. And I, they had left some few carrots in the field and, and this is some of my little stuff. And I decided, and I can't, I don't know if I can compete on price, you know, so um, if you can develop an economical market that will buy carrots from you at a price that pays for digging and washing on a small scale, that could work. So I am not discouraging that but know your cost and market. In my opinion, you are not going to compete with the large farms and stores on price. So the added value would be customers who want to have a local food supply or a flavor or type of freshness that they want. A good place for farmers market, CSA, retail, or restaurants. We have a mix of micro and, and small to mid, not macro. 
I think the future is developing to make it harder for small and mid-range farms to stay in business, but the need is for more small and mid-range farms for the development of our society. At least if more people are to use farming as a living and development for our families. Keep this in mind if you are involved in decisions which affect the life and viability of smaller family farms. If it is gardening you are thinking about, that should be happening anyway, in my opinion, no matter what size of entity you are. He who taught Adam and Eve in Eden how to tend the garden would instruct men today. There is wisdom for him who holds the plow and plants and sows the seed. The earth has its concealed treasures and the Lord would have thousands and tens of thousands working upon the soil who are crowded into the cities. This may not be the forum to express some of my deeper frustrations regarding the squeeze of our size of any or any farm operation, but perhaps sometime when, it, when and if appropriate. I would rather mind my own business, but doing so is becoming increasingly difficult. So now David Obermiller is going to share some things with you about his startup and what he's been doing in farming. Um, all right, well, I run Harvest Fields Organic Farm in Fresno, California. I'm going to give you a little virtual farm tour uh, so you know kind of what we have. Uh, first of all, Brad asked me to talk about some things today, like uh, startup expenses. And when I get to that section, it's relevant for you to know that we are a nonprofit farm and that you'll have to use your own discernment to decide what's relevant to you and what's not. But we're a nonprofit farm on the campus of Fresno Adventist Academy. We have 13 total acres, everything being certified organic. We're certified with CCOF, in case you're curious. Um, we have four greenhouses. I'll show you a picture here. Uh, actually, two of these are greenhouses. Two of them are high tunnels. The two on the left are heated uh, propane, and then the two on the right are unheated structures. Uh, this is on the north end of the old football field at the school, which they didn't use anymore. This is the old track. Um, we've actually extended the field out, and the track is no longer there either. Um, obviously, the football field is not. Uh, inside the greenhouse are growing tomatoes and uh, cucumbers in the other one. I didn't take a picture of that. Uh, this is a buckwheat cover crop we had in the other greenhouse, just so it wasn't sitting uh, uh, barren during the summer months. Uh, we just wanted to keep the soil worked up a little bit so it didn't harden out. We don't have cooling in the greenhouses at the moment, so it's too hot to grow anything in the summer, but we didn't want the ground to be barren, like I said. Uh, we're planting in the areas, if I go back. Yeah, like, um, will you come and help us deal with it? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we grow in between all the sections, the sections in between the greenhouses. There's uh, three in between and then one on each end. And that picture there is from the north end of the tunnels. Uh, this is a section of eggplant that we grew and going off to the south. This is a summertime picture, obviously. This is the old football field. Uh, we have four acres of navel oranges. That's what we're doing right now, uh, picking and selling oranges. Uh, we do it mostly direct to retail and then obviously through our CSA. And we do some 
worked with local Adventist schools. We provided to them as a fundraiser. We sell it to them at a wholesale price. And then they sell it to their constituents and they use it to raise a little bit of money. Uh, the schools we sell to will probably make a couple thousand dollars a year just reselling our oranges. Uh, eight acres of mixed crops, small fruits, vegetables, an acre of table grapes. I'll show you some of the pictures here. This is melons back in the summer, cantaloupe and honeydew, uh, some lettuce. We're doing uh, some a sweet alyssum. We're doing, how do you describe it? So in our field here, we have 48 uh, rows per block. And every 12th row is a beneficial insect row. Just dedicated that to habitat diversification. Using sunflowers, sweet alyssum, uh, blended mixes, um, just trying to cultivate habitat for the beneficial insects. That's a, a row of lettuce beside it. I think that that's corn growing over here. It's too fuzzy. Uh, we're planting onions over here on the left with some of the students from the school. I think that actually was a homeschool field trip that day. Uh, but these are students from the school in the middle here uh, looking at potatoes that we had planted. Let's picture some of the grapes. Um, so where are we selling our stuff to? Uh, we're doing two things. We're trying to have a diverse customer base, not putting all my eggs in one basket. So we have a 60 member, well, we have more members than this. We were doing about 60 boxes a week in our CSA right now. And then we're doing direct to retail. Um, the terminology is a little bit confusing, I think, in the industry, but like, you guys are truly doing wholesale stuff uh, where they're going through a broker distributor type system. We're doing direct to retail. That means we're selling it right to the back door of the restaurant. There's no middleman between us and them and then they're selling it to uh, the consumer retail. So restaurants and local grocers, we also sell to a local food hub that uh, runs a CSA as well. Um, so one of the things Brad asked me to talk about is the differences between CSAs and uh, for us direct to retail. I think he can discuss the wholesale side better so I decided not to say anything about that. Um, but some differences for us in between the CSA and the direct to retail customers we have is obviously number one is price. The, the CSA customer, and this would be the same thing if you're doing a roadside stand or a farmer's market, uh, you're gonna have a higher sale price. You can get full price for the product. Uh, maybe you can discount it a little bit below what people would pay for it in the store, but we tend to shop the local grocery stores pretty regularly. Um, especially since we're delivering to some of them anyway. I like to nose around in the produce department and see what they're selling them for. Um, by the way, I am one of the delivery drivers on the farm. I have another gentleman that does them, but I deliver to my customers personally. And I can't do that all the time because I have stuff to do, but I want to do that some because I want to be connected with the customer. I want to look in their produce department. I want to see what's on their shelf. I want to see what it looks like, what the quantity is you know, what the price is. I, I wanna know exactly what they have going on in their store and I wanna hear their feedback directly too. And so one advantage to both of these, since we're not going through a broker or distributor, is that I have direct communication with the person that's buying it from me, whether that's the CSA member or the produce manager or the restaurant owner of the store. But the uh, CSA, I'm gonna get the highest price. Uh, the grocery store has gotta make money on it, so they're gonna pay you about half. Um, roughly speaking, about half of what they're gonna sell it for. So it's a pretty big drop in the price. 
The CSA members require high crop diversity because when people go to the grocery store, they buy a wide variety of things. You have to grow a wide variety of things to keep your CSA members happy. We do supplement what we grow with produce from other local farms uh, so that we can have things like, I don't have stone fruit, so we buy organic stone fruit from another local farmer and other things like that that we aren't interested in growing or don't have the right land to grow or just aren't able to grow at this point for one reason or another. Um, so this really magnifies the amount of skill you need and magnifies the opportunities you have to mess something up. Um, you have to spend a lot more time knowing what you're doing and making sure that you know what you do um, to keep the customer happy and keep your your supply happy, uh, consistent is what I meant. The nice thing about working with a grocery store is that they'll be happy buying a couple things from you if you have it consistently in quantity. Um, I don't need to grow 70 different things to sell to the local grocery store. They'll be happy if I have four or five or six or maybe even less depending on what it is. Uh, I have customers that only buy from us when we have oranges. Uh, I sell up into Sacramento. It's a three and a half hour drive for me to get there. But every time I go up, I'm taking $2,500 worth of oranges and that's all they're gonna buy from me and they're quite okay with that and they're only gonna get it for four months of the year and they're okay with that because we have good oranges that have good flavor and um, that reduces the headache uh, of, of having to monitor a whole bunch of different crops. But again, you get paid less for it. So in uh, that same scenario, if you're gonna grow high diversity, you're gonna grow lower quantities. So I might grow 50 different things, but I'm only gonna grow enough for the CSA customers to eat on a weekly basis. Whereas a grocery store, like some of our good grocery stores, they go through a case of romaine lettuce a day. You know, and that's on the organic side and some of the grocery stores bigger, you know, go through more than that. Um, kale and some of these other things, they move a lot of tomatoes, it's all the same. They'll go through a whole bunch of it so you need higher quantities on the retail side, direct to retail side, and lower on the uh, CSA side. Well, there, here's one of the nice things about this, is if you grow too much of something, and this is your only customer outlet, you're gonna be stuck with it, and it's gonna rot. Um, your direct to retail customers, like a grocery store, they have a greater capacity to absorb extras from you. And on the flip side of that is that if you don't have enough of something one week, most of our customers are pretty flexible and they're gonna order from their distributor who they'd be ordering from anyway if you didn't have it locally. So let's say the guy who goes through a case of romaine a day and this week I only have five cases. It's not a big deal, I tell him what I have and then he orders the rest from, he always calls it the house. Um, kind of funny. And each, by the way, each produce manager is way different one from another. These guys are, I got guys that are really, really good and know how to take care of their stuff and they've been in business in that business for many years and I got other guys that couldn't keep basil from turning brown if their life depended upon it. They'll put it in the, they'll put it in the cooler at the wrong temp. They'll put it on the rack underneath the, the sprinkler thing that comes on and then once it gets wet, it turns black. And then they call and complain and say, hey, your basil's not holding up. Well, duh. I mean, <laughs> it says on the package, 55 degree storage. Why'd you put it in the cooler? But so there's a wide variety of people in that industry. Um, so it's really ironic in my case, we have a grocery store that sells only organic, but he's the worst at taking care of his stuff. 
and the other guy who sells organic and conventionals in a higher-end neighborhood of Fresno, and his, his produce market's absolutely pristine. I mean, the guy is on top of everything, knows exactly what to do, and um, so, so there's some differences there. Uh, CSA customers, farmer's market customers to a degree too, but definitely your CSA customers take a lot more customer service. Uh, you got to answer emails, take phone calls, people call you, how do I sign up for, I'm on your website, I can't figure it out. And even though everything's described on the website, wait, what, how many different types of boxes do you have and, and do I pay in advance or do I pay you when, do I pay you when you deliver the box? You know, you got to answer all these questions. The nice thing about the direct-to-retail side is you'll call the guy once a week, you'll tell him what he has, he'll place an order, you deliver it, and he's out of your life. Bye-bye. And you can go on about your stuff. One of the reasons why we're a nonprofit is because I have a very strong mission uh, component to the farm, and we want to be connected with people. So I want to endure the customer service because I want to build a relationship with them, and yes, I can build a relationship with the guy in the produce department too, um, but there's only five or six of those people that I'm selling to, whereas you know we have you know a hundred-ish members in our CSA that we have contact with, and I can invite these people to events and other things, and, and again that's part of our mission side, not strictly business. Um, CSA customers are a little more tolerant of imperfections. They know they're ordering from a local farm. They know it's not going to be perfect. They want that relationship. They want local. They want fresh. And they're a little bit more tolerant. Um, the grocery stores are not tolerant of that nearly so much. Uh, if you don't have high quality stuff, uh, they're going to send it back to you. And um, doesn't mean you can give your CSA customers junk. We try not to do that to them. But we know they're more tolerant. I mean, I wouldn't throw away a tomato that's scarred, but a grocery store probably would. And our customers realize that, you know, good food doesn't always look the way it looks in a grocery store. Although it depends on where they're buying it. I'm hearing more complaints about the quality of stuff in grocery stores too. Um, okay, so this is complicated for us. And I'm willing to be pretty honest and transparent with you about this, but this is just some... Uh, a basic summary of it. Um, startup expenses are really hard for me to give you a specific number on because every farm is different and there's no way to just throw out a magic number. What it cost Brad is nowhere near the same as what it cost me and vice versa for everybody here. So the question you have to ask yourself first is how much do you want to make? How much money do you want to make? Do you want to make Maybe I should say, how much money do you need to make to survive? Do you need to make 10 grand a year? Do you live with your mom and <laughs> she's paying for your food and she's paying for your phone bill? Actually, this is like, I know 20 year olds that still live off their parents' plans. You know, so um, how much do you need to make? How much do you want to make? Labor in California is uh, about $2,000 a month for us. Minimum wage is $10 an hour for me. Uh, as a small, it's actually $10.50 an hour in California, but as a small business, I have a one-year exemption on that, so it's $10 an hour. Uh, I actually calculated the $2,000 at $13 an hour because I have my backside expenses. I gotta pay part of my employer's social security, um, Medicare, uh, workers' comp expenses, so I calculated that in. 
I figure they're about $13 an hour is what they really cost. So in addition to yourself, how much do you want to make? Do you have employees? And that's about what they have to budget for monthly for my employees. And uh, I was conferring with Brad and Judy on this number. Uh, our farm is pretty similar to theirs in that non-payroll is about 70% of the overall total of expenses. Uh, so fuel for the tractor, fuel for the truck, uh, insurance for our buildings, then uh, fertilizer and seed costs and maintenance and it just kind of the list goes on forever and ever it seems. Um, but about 70% of the total is non-payroll. Um, this is the number that I have heard from most people most consistently that you need to plan on three years minimum before you can start turning around in a really profitable way. Uh, we are in our third year right now and we are pretty much on course for that. I won't tell you what I make personally because it's not much and I don't actually even know what it is. I give my paycheck to my wife and I never even look at it. Um, so, but I know this year uh, I am running maybe 10 to 20 grand below where I need to be to break even. Okay, so that's with five employees, um, two of those people being part-time and um, so I don't have, uh, like I said, I'm willing to be kind of transparent here on this. I don't have an investor or investor meaning a person giving me outside money or in some cases I know people whose investor is their wife who's a nurse or that kind of thing where the other spouse is making the money and floating the farm while the farmer figures it out. Um, I don't know what it is about nurses, but I know many farmers that are married to nurses and they've <laughs> covered the farmer. Tom Willie was that way. Yeah. Were you a nurse too? No, okay. Um, so I have about 10 grand on my personal credit card. I didn't like banks. And the school owns all my equipment, which I'm buying back from them. So I didn't have any collateral against the loan, so I couldn't have got a loan against the farm if I even wanted to. So I shoved it on my own credit card and just try to pay it off and keep it, keep it reasonable to keep the farm going. So we're at our most profitable time of the year right now doing navel oranges. And for us as a farm, hope that spring puts us really close to the break even point or headed strongly in that direction. Um, I've talked to a lot of farmers about this. Brad and I have had a number of conversations about it as well. Um, and three to five years seems really reasonable. Uh, one farmer said to me, you know, depending on how you want to live, how you want your arrangement to be and to look like, then you for sure need to have three years of cash before you start your farm. Uh, I've talked to some guys not too long ago. There were three of them that went into business together. They all moved into the same house. It was on the farm. They shared quarters and made the sacrifice to live together. I mean, it's annoying to live with people in close proximity for a long period of time, especially once you get married, especially you have children. And I know people that have done that too. You know, Full Belly Farm's got a really interesting story. Um, and, and they lived pretty primitive for the first couple of years to get it going. If you're familiar with Jean-Martin Fortier, anybody? Uh, Jean-Martin, the, the market gardener. Is that what he calls himself? Yeah. Market gardener. 
Um, he's a French-speaking Canadian. For the first two years when he and his wife started their farm, he lived in a teepee. I'm not lying to you. He lived in a teepee for two years with a, in Quebec, Canada. Yeah, with a wife and child. One child? Or they have two? Do you remember? So they, they, made, they made a tremendous amount of sacrifice in order to start their farm. And I, I've heard so many stories along those lines. But uh, three years is, is the minimum that you want to plan for. And uh, don't be intimidated by the, the circumstances of, of money if you want to jump into farming. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.